You might be aware of the new federal law, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, otherwise known as the CARES Act. This new law provides automatic suspension of principal and interest payments on federally held student loans through September 30th, 2020. Student loan borrowers now have more benefits to consider when planning for the potential financial impact of the coronavirus. But what key things do you need to know that may affect you? Well, I've been getting a ton of questions on this, and so I wanted to bring on a fellow student loan nerd, my friend Travis Hornsby, the founder of Student Loan Planner, and we discuss the headlines, the potential headaches, and the surprising benefits for those of you that qualify. You know, we got your back here at Financial Residency. Thank you for allowing me to be that support. Let's jump on in. Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? Ryan Inman here. And while I usually give you the spill about who I am and what this podcast is about and blah, 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 the things that you shouldn't run with what you learn here, go to someone that can give you a straightforward answer about your specific situation. This is time sensitive. And there are things you need to know literally right now that's going on with your student debt. So as I mentioned in the intro, there are obviously things happening in the world that are going to impact you if they haven't already. And with coronavirus craziness, it seems like the government is working to help those on the front lines alleviate some of the financial burdens, not all of them by any means. Look at how bad the PPP rollout was with all those business loans, but at least they figured out something correct on the student debt side. Now, other industries are also keeping pace to help you out as well. And some of you are continuing to ask questions about the mortgage industry and what they're doing. Your physician friends and family are more than likely trying to refinance their house right now. And the timing's pretty spot on if you can actually get the rates. But what else is missing is you need a mortgage expert to support you. And we have one of the perfect guys for the job. He's got 27 years of experience in building relationships in the mortgage business. That's Mike Fitzmeyer from SunTrust, now Truist. And he prides himself on solving problems for his customers. The home buying experience should be one of the happiest times, but for most, it's also probably the most anxious times. So no matter where you are in the process of buying your new home, you can count on Mike to help you navigate the unexpected twists and turns. Mike's a seasonally mortgage lender, and you'll have him in your corner for years to come. We've ran a lot of business through Mike and have enjoyed working with him. So contact Mike directly at financialresidency.com slash truist, T-R-U-I-S-T. Now, as far as this show goes along, Travis and I are going to uncover the CARES Act surprising benefits to you. And if you have federal student debt, you probably owe it to yourself to firm up a strategy around what you're doing with your student loans. You can reach out to Travis going to financialresidency.com slash Travis. All right, let's jump in and hang out with another fellow money nerd, my friend Travis Hornsby. Travis, what's up, man? Welcome back to the show. Good to be on, Ryan. That's going to be super fun because who likes to nerd out on student debt more than me? You. And this is going to be amazing to kind of jump in and talk through, you know, our state of emergency, the pandemic, and how this all relates to student debt. So obviously laws have been passed. Things are changing rapidly. I want to let everyone know that you and I are talking on April 14th, Tuesday. This is coming live, obviously, on on Monday the 20th. No 420 jokes, Travis. But... We, we are going to be going over what is current as of right now. And the reason I'm saying why we're recording and when we're recording is, and you know this, it could change tomorrow. 
right? So what do we have in law right now? And I think give a, a good background on what's changed in the student loan market just in 45 days. How many hours do we have? We've, got, mean, <laughs> we've got as many as you need. Let's do it. So I think that the the big thing for folks that, to realize is um, everybody who thought public service loan forgiveness isn't going to be a thing can can shove it after this week, right? If you told me that they were going to suspend all student loan payments, all student loan interest, and all federally held student loans, and that that was going to be done in the middle of an economic crisis, and they were going to do it for like six or seven months, I would have said, that's hilarious, right? But they did it. That's exactly what they did with the CARES Act. So CARES is the acronym for, you know, people probably heard that acronym already. It's the thing that President Trump signed, I think, on March 27th. And what's so interesting about this is maybe some of your listeners will remember that Trump had that press conference on March the 13th on a Friday where he just said, like, we're just going to do everything. I don't know what authority I have to do this, but we're just going to do it all, right? And so that's the thing is, like, some of the student loan experts I talked to, you know, were like, how can he say that they're going to suspend interest? Because that's something that can only be done by Congress, not by the president. Well, it turns out that what happened was, is he had already spoken probably with some of the key legislative leaders and that they'd kind of already agreed on like the framework for what they were going to do for a lot of key things. And so they backdated all of the stuff that they did in the CARES Act, even though it was signed on the 27th, they backdated it back to March 13th. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, wasn't that what Obama did when he had mentioned in one of his talks that he was going to change repayment structure and then they postdated it back to that talk? Isn't that how that worked? Well, yeah, something like that. So basically, if you kind of think about sort of what happened is they allowed payments to be paused and interest to be paused starting March 13th. And what's so fascinating about this CARES Act is you can go back in time and get a refund if you made a payment after March 13th. A lot of people don't know this still. So if you were already in an income-driven plan, as of March 13th, that's the only thing that you had to have done. So if you had a payment come out March 14th, they did not suspend auto debits for most servicers until early April, right? So a lot of people made payments in March that all you have to do is call your loan servicer and request a refund and it's processed within two to six weeks. So that's a huge money saver right there for anybody pursuing public service loan forgiveness or any other forgiveness program for that matter is literally you just got to call your servicer and ask for a refund. We just got you like 300 to you know a few thousand dollars back in your pocket right there. Yeah, it's a, a great thing to mention. So we, originally it was going to be like April 10th. And then I had a bunch of clients that in, in the first few days of April, their auto debits, because you get the, some of them get the quarter point reduction. They didn't have it actually pulled. So it was, they saw the 0% show up on their, for their interest at one point. It just takes the servicers a long time. It was unrealistic. Everyone was worried, of course. It gets signed on the 27th on Friday, and people are checking over the weekend, and the servicers are still showing, hey, these don't count for PSLF even, right? Yeah. And then people are freaking out. It's like, well, just give them. They're also at home, not working in an office, giving them some time. So great point. Back till March 13th, if you have have made a payment, you can actually get the, the refund. Some of the confusion is around capitalization of interest. I think maybe just talk a little bit on what that is and then tell them what's going on. The Department of Education has released clear guidance that interest will not be capitalized on any interest that was already accrued interest before this forbearance. So usually for forbearance, when you come out of forbearance, any interest capitalizes back into your principal balance, right? So I think the key thing you want to look at for this is that a national disaster forbearance, which I think does not capitalize the interest. I'd have to double check that. But there's there's different kinds of forbearance and some of them are more generous than others in terms of the treatment of interest. So I think that they're just going to kind of use that framework 
for the capitalization, and I would expect no capitalization of, of interest for this. I'll say that some servicers will still screw this up. Guaranteed, some servicers will probably still make a mistake. And again, like what we saw with the CARES Act, it might take them a couple of weeks to fix it. So you might see some interest capitalize, and then you might have to call and challenge it, and then they might undo that. But you know what's kind of amusing, not amusing, that's the wrong word, but just kind of interesting, or it just makes me chuckle sometimes. It's like the people who are most worried about the capitalization of interest are often the people that should worry about it the least. So for example, if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, your loan is forgiven no matter what the balance is, right? So if you're sure you're going to go work for an academic medical center, you're going to go work at a not-for-profit hospital full-time and fulfill all the obligations of PSLF, you know, a lot of times these are the people that are the most worried about the capitalization of interest, but it's irrelevant. The only thing that matters if you're going for public service loan forgiveness is what are you paying? What are your monthly payments and how do you minimize those? The balance that you have is 100% totally irrelevant, yet people will let the capitalization of the interest or the cruel of the interest, it'll drive them bonkers instead of focusing on something like tax filing status, where if you file the optimal tax filing status, then you can reduce your payment enormously compared to what it might be otherwise, right? So, I mean, there's all kinds of loopholes and, and things, like decisions that you're going to make right now that are going to determine how much or little you're going to get in reduction of the payments and the cost of your student loans. And so that's true if you're going to go for loan forgiveness with PSLF or in the private sector or even for something like uh, you know private refinancing. So there's there's all these changes that have happened. And there's also a lot of changes that happened with the private student loan market as well that we can talk about. Yeah, I think before we go into there, I think great points. But when you talk about high six-figure balances, like everything is magnified, right? It's just human behavior. You go, oh my goodness, I am 400,000 in debt. I want to overanalyze every aspect of it. So I can kind of relate to where they're at and feel for it. But at the same time, there's bigger fish to fry. There's bigger things to worry about. Now, we're talking a lot about direct loans, federally held Perkins and Fell loans. What about the non, you know, federally held Perkins loans or Fell loans or you know, commercially held loans? Yeah. So the federal government only has the authority to act on what they actually own, right? If you don't own the debt, then you can't really go out and change this contract between a private lender and a private customer, right? I mean, that's really intrusive from a legal perspective. So the easy path, the quick path, was to only address federally owned student loans. And what's interesting is about 6 million people that have federal student loans have these old loans from before 2010 called FEL loans or FFEL loans. And the thing is, is about, I think two thirds of these FFEL loans are owned by commercial entities, but they're guaranteed by the government, but they're not owned by the government. So think about this as kind of like Freddie Mac or, or Fannie Mae, you know, kind of like the government's involved, but the government doesn't actually own it, right? investors might own it or something. So that's just like kind of an example of how this works. So these loans do not qualify for payment and interest freezes. So we're seeing a little bit more of this stuff happen as like people think they're going to be included in the suspension and then they don't end up getting included in the suspension. And then they're looking for relief. Like more of those kind of people are contacting us. So just as a, a general example of, of who should and should not consolidate in response to this. So consolidation converts an FFEL loan, one of these old loans, into the direct consolidation loan that so many of your listeners will have that are pursuing public service loan forgiveness. But here's just an example of, of like whether or not you should do this. So first of all, if your payments didn't stop, you know you have one. <laughs> you know? Surprise, I mean, like you still owe money. Yeah, like if you see them still pulling the money out, that it's like, oh, wow, yeah, you still have one, right? So that's kind of the clue. And usually these Perkins loans and these, these fell commercially owned loans will still show up in your studentaid.gov account. 
So, you know, if you have pursued, if you've been paying on income-based repayment for many years, that's a bad idea to consolidate these loans. Um, because fell loans, you know, I mean, you probably don't want to lose any credit on forgiveness, right? But if you, um, and also another reason for the, why it would be bad to consolidate is some of these interest rates, the stated interest rate is like much higher than the actual interest rate that they're charging you because of payment, on-time payment discounts. So I'll just give you an example that I saw last week. It was a client, I think their stated interest rate was like 5.4 or something like that. And because they had made five years of on-time payments, I forget the exact terms, but they'd made a bunch of continuous payments, which gave them a big discount. So their actual rate they're being charged was 3.625. Well, they were on an extended repayment plan. And guess what? You're not going to get 3.625 for like a 30 year loan term, you know, so even in really good times. So like the rational thing for that person to do is probably to stretch up that loan forever until, you know, it's done and then just make payments to their retirement or, you know, you know, taxable investing, that kind of stuff. Right. But if you do the consolidation, you'll get six months of zero payments and zero interest. But then the, pay, the interest starts back up again and it'll start back up again at whatever that stated interest rate is without any of those sweetheart discounts that you were getting previously. So it's like, do you want to give up, you know, that six months? You want to get six months of no interest in exchange for like a permanent 5.4 rate instead of 3.625, right? It's so like that's probably a, a bad trade. It's really like case by case, like individual analysis that's needed for this, unfortunately. So if you have loans from before 2010 and those loans are over six figures, like that's probably who should be getting a, an analysis of this. And if you have less than that, like if you need the relief right now, then just go ahead and consolidate them because it's not the end of the world. You might as well get the zero interest pause payments and figure it out later. <laughs> but if you have a lot of debt, definitely get a review of that. Yeah. I mean, with anything, right, it, you're turning into a planner here. It depends, right? It's very specific to your situation. I think everyone listening for the most part should not be going for a 30-year repayment. I think that's very different with your type of borrower. If you maybe are a social worker or a teacher or maybe in one of the lower paid professions, even though I think everyone in America is getting a rude awakening that teachers are severely underpaid because we are sitting here with my two little ones and I'm now a teacher as well. And I am not cut out to be a teacher. I'm trying my best, but teaching a five and a three-year-old, like so much respect for the teachers already. But I think everyone is uh, going to realize that teachers are significantly underpaid after this. Now, Travis, what are some of the, this is something that I don't have a ton of experience dealing with these refinance companies, these private student debt companies. You deal with these guys all day, every day. I'm just running quotes through them. What are they doing, if anything, for some of the borrowers that have private student debt that got zero relief from this bill? Yeah, I mean, so there was a talk in the original draft of actually making people's private student loan payments for them. So that was going to be the solution was Congress was just going to pay all the payments for everybody with private loans, and that didn't get passed. So a lot of these borrowers or these lenders rather already have terms in place for three months of forbearance at a time if you lose your job. So most of the major companies you might have heard about have that term in place already. But I think a lot of them have sort of tried to go out of their way to repeat that as a policy. So if you're like at SoFi, Laurel Road, Common Bond, Earnest, like a lot of these companies will pause your payments for 90 days, basically for, you know, kind of that's an approximation and it depends on the company. Right. But that's like what they're doing. Now, the thing they're not doing is they're not waiving any of the interest. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is when you do a loan refinance, like they might hold it on their balance sheet. They might sell it and repackage it in terms of, you know, into investors and as, you know, in some sort of broader kind of bond that investors buy. So it's not so simple 
as to just say we're going to suspend all interest. Like that's why interest payments on mortgages have not been suspended because to suspend interest on mortgages would just have this cascading effect throughout the entire economy. That would just be super complicated and wreck a whole bunch of stuff. Whereas with the government um, lender, you know, the, the federal government is the one that gets the interest income. So the government could be like, oh, you know, interest? Yeah, we can suspend all that because we it's just getting paid back to us, right? So we're already you know, printing who, money. What does it matter about some interest? Yeah, yeah. What's another couple billion dollars? Like, you know, put it on the credit cards, right? So for private student loans, it's it's really fascinating, Ryan, because a lot of physicians just kind of assume that you're going to get good rates. Like if mortgage, if 10-year treasury bonds are at 0.5%, why am I not getting like 2% of my mortgage? Why am I not getting 3% of my student loan? And the thing that people don't realize is that this has caused like a seizing of the credit markets, like of credit spreads in general, which that's like kind of technical speak for like when things get bad in the economy, you know, you have to ask for way higher yields to compensate for the higher risk of default and people not paying you. So what's what's happened is, is maybe investors that wanted risky bonds like a couple months ago might have only asked for an extra 1% yield on top of the government, right? But now they need an extra 3 or 4% yield on top of what the government's borrowing at. And some of these banks, they need even more than that. So you're seeing a bite, like a kind of a split in the market. Like some banks are kind of keeping their rates kind of low. But in I would say in, in March when all this happened, a lot of our like re- companies that we were processing millions and millions of dollars in loan refinancings every month through – they just said across the board, raise all the interest rates 3%. So that's basically them saying we have no capacity right now because corporate bond markets are falling apart, right? That, that's that's what they're really saying. So there are some companies, especially bank-backed companies, that have really cheap deposits now thanks to the Federal Reserve. So they're paying out 25 basis points, like 0.25% to, lend to, to savers right now. And so then they can go and make a 4% loan and make that you know 4% spread in terms of what they need to make to justify making the loan. But a lot of the companies that went through like the bond markets to go get bonds to then lend to people at a higher yield, those companies are really being killed right now. So I would say that like during this time, if you're trying to refinance a private loan, you should still refinance private student loans because you can still maybe get lower interest terms or better payment terms. So that's something you should still do. But for any federal loans, you know, definitely now is not the time to look to refinance those. Yeah, with six months of forbearance, it's really hard to to work the math out to come out in your favor, so to speak, for <laughs> that. You're impossible. <laughs> yes. And I've talked about this and I answered a question on the show a while back. It was one of the curbside console daily shows I was doing in talking about the mortgage markets. And, you know, at the time it was they just literally had so much demand and there was not enough supply of actual workers to process all the applications that they were having to raise rates. But rates haven't come back down. And I guess a a quick little update on this is they haven't come back down because now there's a problem in literally the liquidity within the the underlying markets that they're in that they, when the government comes out and says, hey, you can throw your, your mortgage into forbearance and we'll just tack it on at the end of the loan, the servicers... And everyone was like, well, hold on, we need to get paid because we then have to pay it out because we repackaged this and sold it on Wall Street. What do we do? Are we getting a bailout? And so now everyone's stopped lending or they've raised or changed their lending uh, procedures. Like it's, it's causing this huge domino effect. And it's interesting to hear about it in the student debt market, but that's a great reason why the private debt market in, in student debt specifically isn't changing yet and that it's really lender by lender. So I, I appreciate the insight um, that you're giving with the private student debt companies. I want to say one more thing. So there are some companies trying to do things. So, you know, for example, Laurel Road uh, is is probably going to do something around 
you know, physicians or first responders, like they haven't released the details, I think, but like they might be trying to do something for, for that. Um, I would expect more targeted type programs. Like there are some professions that are still getting paid. They're still having like relatively unaffected kind of stuff that, and, and there's some of those people that do still need to refinance their loan. Cause maybe you have a loan of 5% interest. It's like years old and you could get a 4%. I mean, that's still significant savings. Like you should still apply to do that because you do that now because you got a lower rate on your private loan. You can still refinance again after this is all over, right? You can still, you know, refi again once the economy is coming roaring back and hopefully the, the, the liquidity problems, the credit problems with lenders are gone again and you might get a lower rate yet again. So there, there's, it's no reason to wait on that. Um, so, you know, for, for refinancing companies, like we tell people like shop of several places, especially now, if you need to, and then try to get a bonus as well. So it's funny that you mentioned Laura road. Now I won't make you agree or disagree because I know that you have relationships with all these companies and I, I don't, so I can freely talk and say smack if I want to. Right. So it's amazing that Laura road is going to be the one to step up. And I say that because Laura road has had the worst customer service imaginable for some of the clients that we've actually quoted and gone through, but I'm happy that they are going to potentially change their tune. And I hope everyone kind of steps up and helps all the, and not just physicians, right? That's who's listening. And obviously we want that help, but like you know, down to the people that are, you know, getting food from one place to another, truckers, the baggage people having you check out to the janitors, to everyone that's making all this stuff work. I talk all about physicians and thanking them because you're literally risking their lives to go take care of these patients, but there's so many other people. So I hope that they step up and help collectively first responders and everyone out on the front lines. But who knows? Yeah. I mean, there's the thing is, is they're going to do as much as they can, of course, given that they also have to be profitable and pay people and, and not go out of business and all these things. I mean, and I'll say, you know, some lenders, uh, I mean, we're really seeing the split in the different kinds of lenders right now, just because some lenders are going to be better in certain times than others. And some lenders are going to be better at other things compared to other lenders. So the fintechy kind of companies are really good at getting you closed and getting quick quotes and good application experience and easy, straightforward answers, right? But they might not have access to bank capital. And bank capital is a heck of a lot cheaper than going to the corporate debt markets to try to raise $100 million to go do a bunch of student loan refinancing sometimes. So, I mean, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, like people ask me, like, student loan refinancing a commodity? I think it absolutely is. Like, you just want to be finding the place that gives you the lowest rate. And if you're willing to put up with a little bit of annoyance sometimes, I mean, the worst case scenario is you'll lose an hour of your time, maybe, mm-hmm. like just trying to dither through it and compare all these different things and getting a straight answer from someone. But, um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of petitions on the Internet for um, going around to, like, forgive all physicians student loan debt, you know, and all nursing student loan debt. I think that what that's really going to do is just solidify public service loan forgiveness even more. But I do not think that they're going to be coming to rescue dermatologists and, and private practice orthopedic surgeons and things like that. So I think that refinancing for federal loans will be a thing again after all of this is over. Because I think that like that person that lost her entire income, PPP and all those things, they stop at 100,000, right? Your stimulus check stops once you're at the 150K, I think, joint income mark, right? So like that's another thing that's not really getting talked about because high income earners are not that sympathetic like politically. But they, I think in this case, they should be because there's a lot of people that are kind of the core economic constituents of their community that were paying the big mortgages, paying the big property tax bills, paying the big private school tuitions, uh, restaurants, all these things. 
that are now out of a job, not making any money. Mm-hmm. And, and that really does flow downhill when you have like these people that you would assume always were going to get paid and make a ton of money suddenly not be the case anymore. Yeah. So it's funny and not to be political at all, because I, I really am not political at all. But, you know, when Bernie was running, it was going to be basically forgiveness. And everyone thought, oh, wow, he's just going to wipe all of our debt. And it's like, no, no, no. He was going to wipe debt up to a certain limit, which was like thirty five or fifty thousand. And then there was like it basically phased out. And it was everyone was thinking like, oh, I'll just get all my debt forgiven. Like, that's who we should we should vote for. And when you think like if there's petitions going around, if there is any forgiveness that will happen, I can almost bet on this one. That if you've got over a hundred K of income, you ain't included. Like there are 150 K they're going to just like the PPP, they're going to phase it out. And those of you that make, which is pretty much everyone listening other than residents, you're probably not going to get anything for that. Well, I want to be a little careful because sometimes that logic gets applied to PSLF. And, and that and should not be start... applied to PSLF. I know we're talking about right. something totally separate, or at least I am on right. this one. Basically, like actually what I think could happen with PSLF and, and alternative kind of forgiveness too. Vice President Biden came out with a, a proposal to pay 5% of your income for 20 years instead of 10%. So that would be a big deal because obviously you'd be paying half of what you're paying under pay as you earn or otherwise pay as you earn, right? And also he's proposed eliminating the tax bomb. If you run that math, basically most physicians would need to have debt that's like half of their income or less to justify paying it off. Like that's really, really crazy. So like you'd have to have medical school debt below 200 grand if you were making 400 grand of income to justify paying that kind of debt off, even if you were in the private sector, if that were to pass. So to clarify, you're saying that if I was going to make $400,000 and under the proposed plan that Biden would actually come out with, that where it's not a forgiveness option, but it's just another change to the repayment plans because we needed more of those that if I made 400,000, whatever specialty I'm in, and I have 200,000 of student debt, you're saying that it's actually better or is the math kind of, I know you ran math like this, but that over a 30 year period that it'd actually be better just to keep the debt than to actually turn around and pay it off. Well, yeah, like that's the thing is you have to when you're considering all the different strategies for your student loans, you have to think about what is and what might be. And if you don't think about what might be, then you might make a really bad mistake that you can't take back, like refinancing and then needing to not refinance. You know, you can't undo that. So what I'm simply saying is you have to think about what might happen with student loans when you're planning for them, because I think what's probably going to happen eventually is for the 20 year version of loan forgiveness and you know for people that get it when they work in the private sector which is called pay as you earn you can do pay as you earn or repay in the public sector and not for profit sector and get PSLF or you can do it outside of those not for profit public sector kind of jobs and also get forgiveness but it's taxed as if it were income and in the public not for profit sector it's not taxed it's forgiven tax free what i think will probably happen is eventually i think that the taxability of loan forgiveness and the private sector is going to end. So I think that that's kind of a, a foregone conclusion in my mind that that might happen at some point. And if you think about the math for that, that means a lot of people in private practices, I'm talking anybody that works part-time, I'm talking anybody that's not in a specialty that's like the highest earning specialties, right? So if you're anything besides urology, orthopedic surgery, maybe radiology, you know, um, dermatology, like if you're outside of the top earning specialties, even people in private practice are going to be incentivized to go for loan forgiveness. Like, so that's something that you really need to, to think about when you're considering, do I pay off my loans or not? 
I'll give you another example. There's this loophole that we haven't really even realized existed until maybe six months to 12 months ago. We're trying to come up with a good name for it. I kind of call it the, the fighting spouses loophole. And the reason why this is an interesting loophole is if you have one spouse, let's say that you know she's a, a pediatrician making $150,000 a year, maybe has 400000 at medical school debt because she went to an osteopathic medical school, right? Um, so married to a urologist with $100,000 of student loan debt. So what's interesting about that is, is the repay plan is a proportional payment. So I don't want to get too crazy into math. But basically, you calculate the marital payment, which is based on like all of your income. And then it's, you know, if, if one person owes 80 percent of the debt, then 80 percent of that joint payment would be applied to that person's payment. And then 20 percent would get applied to the other person's because they have the smaller debt amount. Right. So what happens is, is if you file taxes separately instead of jointly, then instead of having that pediatrician pay 80 percent of her, her joint marital payment, you can pay based on only her income. So you can pay 10% of basically her income only, which could end up with a payment of like 1000 to 1500 a month instead of a payment of like three to 4000 a month. And then you can also get, like you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. The person that makes the high income with the low debt, they can pay based on repay, which is a proportional payment. So like overall, a physician couple might've saved 20 to 30 grand in kind of an extreme case based off of just this one loophole and knowing like how to file taxes separately and why. So it's not so simple, you know, especially for, for married physicians. And this is true if you're married to somebody that has debt or doesn't have debt. It gets like as complicated as it is if you're single. It gets easily like two to three times more complicated when you get married, just in terms of understanding the loopholes and the tax filing status. And, and those tax filing decisions, by the way, those are going to be made from, you know, now until July 15th. Like maybe you've already filed your taxes. Maybe a lot of people are like, oh, great. I have until July. I'm going to procrastinate, right? But but that decision can really impact a lot when your student loans do eventually come out of repayment. And that's a decision that has to be made right now. Yeah, those are good points. The only caveat I'd, I'd say to that is there's also some tax consequences for filing separate versus joint. And this is something that from a tax standpoint, a CPA really should be diving in and helping you understand what that means from your tax side. And on the student debt piece, this is something where I think Travis and, and your team is actually really good at diving in and understanding the nuances for student debt. But they are like a nice marriage of two things. Travis is not going to be your CPA that's doing your taxes and knowing all those pieces. And your CPA is probably going to look at you like you're talking crazy when you start understanding student debt and how that relates to your repayment and how that could change under your tax filing. Well, let me tell you like a, a real life story, like a client story we had from this week. So, I mean, we're not going to do your taxes for you. That's not our core competency, but, but we do know a lot about taxes. We have a CPA on staff. We try to make sure that we're giving you the right guidance in terms of you need to double check this or you need to go get a second opinion or this CPA doesn't seem like they know what they're doing. So just as an example, we had a client in Washington state. Washington state is a community property state. And that means that according to community property rules, when you file your taxes married filing separately, you're supposed to equally distribute your income on your tax return if you file separately, because that's what you do with community property rules. So, for example, if, if you're making 200000 and your spouse makes zero, then when you file taxes in a community property state, you file separate instead of 200 and zero being the incomes. Instead, it's 100 and 100. So that makes a big, big difference because that takes a tax penalty that's massive and basically virtually eliminates it. 
And then the other thing it does is it allows you, if you're doing pay as you earn, to pay based on $100,000 instead of $200,000. So that's a, a five-figure difference in payments. And the CPA and this particular CPA ran the person's taxes, and we could tell that they didn't file Form 8958 to equally distribute tax taxable income across both spouses. So the CPA said, hey, this is going to be real expensive for you if you file your taxes separately. And I said, wait a second. The only thing that you should lose is the student loan interest deduction in this case. That's, you know, like $500 in terms of your entire tax bill. So the CPA is like costing them thousands of dollars extra because like 2% of people file separately. Like it's very small. So and for student loans, there's this huge reason to do it in a lot of cases. And so CPA is by and large like really unfamiliar with filing separate rules you know, especially in some of these states that the CPAs are more nationally based and they don't have like a huge background with like filing separately in community property states. Like we see those mistakes all the time. And those are usually four or five figure mistakes annually. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to kind of mention this next point is make sure you're talking to someone who is an expert in that sort of planning or preparation, right? This is we're talking tax. This makes it's highly relevant to what we're discussing with filing joint and separate. We're going and talking to Travis, who literally all he does all day every day is nerd out on student debt. That's why when I say when you're selecting a financial planner, go to someone who literally works with just physicians, right? When you're expecting an estate planning attorney, you don't go to a corporate lawyer to do your estate plan. You go to someone who does lots of estate plans in your state. Those things make sense. So finding someone that's a jack of all trades usually is a master of none. And that's why you need to have a good CPA by your side to help you through, especially if you're going to be doing some of the stuff. To be completely honest, we've honestly stopped all of our student debt analysis. Like we stopped doing it. I know a ton about student debt. Obviously, I like nerding out on this stuff. We have Loan Buddy that is working with other advisors so they can teach their clients how to manage their student debt correctly. But we send everything to Travis because this is all Travis does. This is his wheelhouse. And Honestly, I like doing some of the other planning a little bit more than I like nerding out on student debt. Like we're talking real estate and we're talking a few other pieces. So for the one-off clients that come out to us and say, hey, I just want you to manage, you know, help me manage my student debt. Just tell me what's going on. My first and pretty much only call has been to Travis to handle those pieces. So if you're interested in working with Travis, highly would recommend Travis. You can go to financialresidency.com slash Travis. I know, Travis, you also have a landing page set up for our listeners at Go, which was uh, studentloanplanner.com slash FR. So it all gets you to the same place. But it, to know that you have a, a link to book on his calendar, I didn't mean to turn this into a mini little Travis advertisement here. But I think it goes without saying that these things require someone who specializes in this. So please don't listen to what we're saying and immediately go take action get it reviewed by someone. These are huge mistakes you could potentially make. And you don't want to be on the other side of going, crap, I shouldn't have refinanced because someone in the lounge told me that like rates were low. They are low and maybe refinancing is for you, but maybe it's not. And so if before you make massive decisions, don't listen to a podcast and go do that. Even if it's my own and I know we have good information, but get it reviewed by someone who can see the whole picture because there's no way that we could ever do any one-on-one advice over a podcast. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some things that you can know and learn, right? Like there's there's a lot of books out there. Like Dr. Ben White has a book on student loans. It's a really good book. Fantastic you know, I mean, book. like yep. yeah, like and and you know, there's there's all these different things. 
all these different resources that people should and can take a look at. I think that the, the big thing is, is, you know, we're a lot cheaper than a financial planner. You know, I mean, a lot of times, like, you know, financial planners have to give residency pricing for people like that can't afford to pay like multi thousands of dollars and then attending pricing like that might be different. Like we're a few hundred bucks. There's like a team of us now. So it's like five other planners besides me. And we do like we, you know, it's like 400 to 600 bucks like this. And this is something like on average, we tend to save people an average of around like forty five thousand dollars is the projected savings for like average person. Yeah. And what was interesting. So I noticed it because I know you and we've talked a whole bunch about these things. But you said, hey, this happened this week. Hey, this happened this week. And someone might be like, how, how much could really happen this week? Right. They might be potentially doubting it. So I'm just curious. I know you know this number or I'm assuming you know this number. How much debt have you guys actually advised on? Because I know that I'm in like the 40 ish million right? By myself, solo guy, right? But you got a team of you. How, how much debt are you guys at and how it advised on? <laughs> about about 943 million. Okay. So we're almost at a billion dollars of debt. Now you work obviously <laughs> with some other professions and stuff, but this is all you guys do. So it's, it's fascinating to see how you guys have grown and you're just doing a great job. I want to end on one thing here, Travis. We've had a couple clients that they do all elective procedures and their incomes were very healthy. They're making five, six, some are making 800,000. And just in a matter of months, they now make nothing, right? Practices are closing down or they're just deciding, hey, we're not doing any distributions because we're not working. And one of the things that I've always said is that if you are solely going to be off, um, your income is variable. You want to have more of an emergency fund. And this is one of those times that I think everyone's learning man, that emergency fund was actually a real deal. Like we're in an emergency, you're probably needing to use it. Those of you that have a very set, you're in academics, whatever, you make a study W-2 paycheck. I think the emergency fund, usually we say three to six months is understandable. But what are your thoughts on basically someone who's lost income due to coronavirus at this point? Are there any strategy or any other things that you've kind of come across or have told other people if they're in that boat, right? That they're making a bunch of money, now they're making nothing. Maybe with respects to student debt. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a great tip. If you've lost your income completely, even if it's for a temporary amount of time, go to studentaid.gov. So studentaid.gov and specifically go to studentaid.gov slash IDR. So go there, like type that link into your browser, and then there's going to be this button at the top of the page that says apply. And if you scroll down, you're going to see several different things you can do with income-driven repayment plans. One of them says recalculate my payment. So if, if your income went down, that's an event that justifies you recalculating your payment right away. You might ask, why would I recalculate my payment, Travis, if my income dropped when I'm already paying $0 a month? The reason is, is that in September 30th, your payments will resume again. And if you recalculate your payment now, there's a real good chance that that payment might last for much longer than until September 30th. I can't guarantee that, but what would be amazing is imagine getting a $0 a month revised pay-as-you-earn payment as a private practice physician. Imagine that lasting instead of through September 30th. Imagine if it lasted through April 2021, and now you're getting a 50% interest subsidy on $300,000 of student loans, so you're saving an extra ten grand over that time frame, an extra, if you prorate it, maybe six to seven grand of interest just by one action you took on a simple browser, right? That's maybe the equivalent of two or three weeks worth of work that you saved just by knowing that one hack. 
right? So that's what I would tell somebody if that's had a big income drop is recertify your payment at studentaid.gov slash IDR. Yeah, it's a, a great one. I'm happy you brought that up. Now, what we're talking about is not consolidating any loans or not doing it. You're just changing, you're updating your income, you're filing those forms. It's not structural change of your loans. I'm glad you brought up consolidation. So there's a lot of people graduating medical school right now, some early, some on time. And consolidation is a very valuable thing to do to speed up the process of entering into income-driven repayment for purposes of PSLF. So we're still telling people to consolidate if you don't have any credit at all towards PSLF. That's still a thing. That advice still applies. So the reason why that matters is instead of having your payment start in July when your residency might start, your payment, if you do absolutely nothing, will start in November or December, which will cost you on average three to four months worth of PSLF credit, right? So that three or four months of PSLF credit would have been at $0 a month. And at the end of your PSLF, you're going to be paying based on your attending income. So that one action that you could do right after graduation for medical school would save you probably five to $10,000 at the tail end of things if you're pursuing PSLF. Yeah, it's a great option. So to recap that little piece, because we went a little quick on it, is that if you were already in attending, you're out practicing, you're making good money, now you make nothing. You're going to go recertify and that will help you have some subsidy and $0 payments. If you are just starting and you're finishing med school and you're about to start residency, consolidation can still occur and it might be to your best benefit because we've talked a lot about those $0 payments already in training your first year having those in those counting. Well, we're saying to start it maybe a little bit early, get that timer started and it will last through September in before you then need to turn around and recertify again. It might last longer. I've been debating this with some student loan attorney friends of mine, and there's this just this huge conflict of interest with a bunch of politicians of both parties running for re-election that don't want to be Say sending out a bunch so. of payment notices of course, <laughs> right before the election. So I think that the only way that that doesn't get extended is probably if there's some sort of, I mean, the economy really reopens strongly in like late June, July things are not back to normal, but you know better than we think they're going to be right now. I could see the CARES Act getting extended into the end of the year, probably like in December. I, I don't want to go on the record saying that's definitely going to happen, but I think that it's a possibility. And that's even more important why you need to make sure that you're getting PSLF credit during this time. Like if you were not enrolled in an income-driven plan on March 13th, you were not getting credit right? If you were on a different kind of forbearance before then, or you're in deferral because you're in residency deferment, right? If you were in one of those kind of statuses, like a lot of residents still defer their student loans as bad as that is. I mean, so you need, and some people are freaking out because their PSLF credit like date, like got extended six months. That's going to get corrected. That's just like a servicer, like mechanical thing. Like that's not showing you're not getting credit. So don't worry about that. But I'm definitely worried about those people that were not already set up to get it, you know, qualifying payments as of March 13th, which is why that consolidation advice still applies to people that are entering residency and why like anybody who is somehow still in deferment or forbearance before March 13th needs to get that corrected urgently. Yeah, I just literally did a presentation for one of the residency programs at Hopkins this morning and was telling them exact same thing. Like, please don't be in forbearance or deference right now. Like you have $0 payments. This is a big deal. These will count. If you messed up in the beginning in your intern year, you get a do-over, essentially, uh, at this point, even though the money is not a ton and it's hard to kind of muster that you were going to be paying something, 
you're not paying anything right now. So just file the paperwork. Don't put it off. Don't be an ostrich and shove your head in the sand. Go get it done. Get to work because the $0 payments add up. And the example, and we'll, we'll kind of end with this one, is we have a client that pays over $3,000 a month to his loans on the federal side. He's going for PSLF. Now, huge balance. And he's like, well, Ryan, what do I do? I've basically just got like 20 something thousand bucks from the government that I'm just not paying. And I was like, well, guess what? That credit card debt that we just eliminated, you still have a little bit left on the personal loan that we will eliminate over the next few months. And then we're actually going to fund your IRAs in full this year. Oh, wow. This is going to be fantastic. It's like a free money. It's free gifts, right? So obviously with bigger balances, you have bigger payments, and that's this one specific case. But I'm sure you have a bunch of cases of people that are paying tons of money to the government and going to get a nice welcomed gift, and hopefully they spend it wisely. I mean, it's going to be tough, though, because people are adapters. They adapt to whatever income they have in their bank account. That's true if you're 50000 a year or 500000 a year. And what's going to be so painful is when all these student loan payments that were in a national pause all start up again. Because this, I don't care how good the recovery is, even if we recovered to exactly the place we were before, you're still going to have all these folks that have to pay, catch up on their mortgage payments or have to catch up on their estimated tax payments. Do you know what I mean? Because the people that deferred doing payroll tax for employees, like all these kind of deferred things. Yeah, you can defer stuff and that helps with cash flow temporarily. But I definitely am a little concerned about these folks that don't have any plan at all, just because eventually this is going to end this national forbearance, and yes, payments will start up again. So what are you going to do to set yourself up right now so that when this all gets better economically, eventually, you know what you're going to do? Well, a lot of us money nerds have always been worried about the people who don't have plans, which is why we shout from the rooftops, get a plan in place. You don't need to hire an advisor, just do the work, right? Get the plan in place. But I'm a glass half full person, and I'm hoping that not just physicians, but just society in general has realized that all the extra crap you don't really need that you're not buying, that Amazon's not delivering because it's not essential. (laughs) Maybe some little part of me is hoping that when all this goes back to normal, that they're not going to blow their budgets. They're going to save more than for a $400 emergency. Like I'm hoping that some behavioral shifts come out of this from spending and people are spending in a way that makes them happy and they're pausing and but I know part of me is it's wishful thinking. Yeah, I mean, and two, what's so fascinating to me is so many of our assumptions are just getting wasted in this economic crash, right? If you had told me that the Mayo Clinic was going to cut physician incomes by like 10% or 20% or whatever they just announced. Oh, you were crazy. I would say you're nuts. Like yeah. an academic physician at the Mayo Clinic, most prestigious place in the world for medicine, they're going to get their incomes cut. So like a lot of what we're expecting is like the private practice people were on the front lines because in terms of the income loss, not necessarily like, I don't mean in terms of treating the virus or anything, but somewhere, somewhere, but in terms of losing income, that happened for the private physicians really fast. Well, it's going to eventually happen to the academic physicians, right? And so I think that we're going to see a delay in that because a lot of these bigger institutions are slower moving. There's And a lot of the physicians that are getting paid academically are getting their already lower percentile on the pay scale as it is so that these hospitals have a lot of profit and you know reserves kind of for situations like this. But you're not immune. That's why you need the plan. That's why you need to pay attention to this stuff, listen to podcasts like this is because all these things you're assuming about how you have the golden ticket of being a physician. You know, my wife's a physician. 
And we're expecting her income is going to take a hit. And she makes the lower kind of percentile for her specialty because she's academic medicine. So the good news is if you do plan, if you do pay attention, if you don't put your head in the sand, right, then that's that just gives you so much more flexibility and comfort financially where you're going to be the person helping others during the next financial crisis or recession versus the person looking for help. And that's a wonderful place to be in. Both of us are very blessed, I think, to be in that position to help others and go out to take out restaurants, try to support the restaurants in our community, like things like that. So just thank you for everyone listening, what you do, and just get a plan regardless of who you talk to. Just get something in place. Yeah, I completely agree. Get a plan. There you know, you heard it from another source that wasn't just me up here saying, get a plan, get a plan. So hopefully you can start building out that plan. Our financial fellowship is actually live this week for open for registration. So if you want to get a plan and you're more of a DIY person, come join us. I'll put the link in the description of this show as well as a link directly to Travis and his team so you can work potentially with Travis if that is something that you need to look into if you've got tons of student debt and you're trying to make a change. Don't make a change without actually really understanding what you're doing on that piece. Last point, if you do specifically mention financial residency or book through the financial residency link that Ryan's going to post, then we're going to give people a year of email support questions. We usually give six months. So that's an extra basically six months of questions that you're able to ask after the consult is over just to make sure that all the action steps get fully implemented. So make sure that if you do end up working with us, that you book through Ryan's link just to make sure that we can attribute that uh, so you get that extra support. That's cool. Thank you for doing that. I know that listeners really need some help with some of the stuff. And that's awesome that you guys are doing it in that way. For those that don't know that you have a podcast, which I was awesome and was a guest on, I shouldn't say I was awesome. You were awesome and made me a guest on your show. I posted it in our community though, for those that want to listen, but tell us a little bit about the podcast, a little bit about the business, just where can they find more resources on student debt? Yeah, I mean, Student Loan Planner Podcast is the name of the podcast that you can search anywhere that you're subscribed to this from. And then I should say studentloanplanner.com. No the, just studentloanplanner.com. You can go there and click on the blog and then there's a little search icon and like literally anything you can imagine, we've probably written a lot on already. So, you know, whatever your specialty is, whatever your PSLF situation is, whatever your status is, resident fellow, just like type that into our site and we'll have a ton of content on that. So we probably publish, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of articles on our site about all these different topics. So I would say that for those DIYers, you can go through and learn all this stuff. Student Loan Planner podcast and then our blog are the two places I would send people. And then for people that are just like, yeah, I'm busy. I'd rather just have the easy button for a few hundred bucks. Like those are the people that should book a plan with us, particularly the people that have more than 100,000 of student loan debt. And there's some ambiguity as to whether or not that they should be paying it back in full or not. So really people that owe more than what their attending incomes are going to be really need to get that plan, I think. So anybody who's going to owe, I'm going to say that again, anybody who's going to owe more in student loans than their income is as an attending definitely needs to get a second opinion on this just to make sure that you're doing things the right way. I could not agree more. You're playing with hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not a time to be just ballparking it or even worse, sticking your head in the sand and being an ostrich. So. Travis, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. You know, you're doing great work and I appreciate the many years of friendship and advice and just nerding out on student debt like we do. So thank you again for being on. Thank you, Ryan.
All right, and now it's time for our recap of three things that I'd love for you to walk away with. Now, the first one is the important dates, March 13th through September 30th of 2020. There's an interest rate that has now been brought down to zero, accruing for federally owned student debt, and payments have also been suspended. Now, Travis mentioned that from what he observed, the government was finally following the guidelines for forbearance. Well, the Department of Education has released clear guidance that interest will not be capitalized on any interest that was already accrued interest before this forbearance. So usually for forbearance, when you come out of forbearance, any interest capitalizes back into your principal balance, right? So I think the key thing you want to look at for this is a a national disaster. The second takeaway is around the suspension of payments and the reduction of the interest rate to zero and how that only applies to federally owned debt. Now, this is because the government can only act on debts that it owns, but this has been very confusing about does the government own the debt or not? The federal government only has the authority to act on what they actually own. If you don't own the debt, then you can't really go out and change this contract between a private lender and a private customer, right? I mean, that's really intrusive from a legal perspective. So the easy path, the quick path was to only address federally owned student loans. And lastly, Travis thinks that the PSLF program is here to stay. I completely agree. If you've listened to the show any number of times, you know that I've been saying that the PSLF program is here. But here were some of his thoughts on why. There's been a lot of petitions on the internet for going around to like forgive all physician student loan debt, you know, and all nursing student loan debt. I think that what that's really going to do is just solidify public service loan forgiveness even more. But I do not think that they're going to be coming to rescue dermatologists and private practice orthopedic surgeons and things like that. So I think that refinancing for federal loans will be a thing again after all of this is over. One of my favorite segments of the show is our quick community update. And this show was all about what you need to know about the laws happening around you and regarding your student debt. So be sure to reach out to Travis and his team directly if you have any questions or if you need to actually go through and complete a plan around your student debt. You can find them at financialresidency.com slash Travis. Also over the weekend, our financial fellowship officially opened for registration, which was super neat. If you're the type of person who needs more support around you as you build out your financial plan, then this membership is just for you. There are so many perks to joining. We've got biweekly calls with me and the team. Casey drops in all the time asking your specific questions. We get into the nitty gritty a lot on our group calls, which is super fun. We're giving you tools, that's spreadsheets, charts, flow charts, all sorts of cool exercises. We're limiting the registration to probably around 25 spots. It's first come, first serve. So if you want to join, be sure to email me, ryan at financialresidency.com to get more info. So I hope I see you guys inside the fellowship. Before we end, it's definitely time for that important disclaimer. Because gaining control of your finances starts with listening and accessing high quality information, which I hope that I'm doing here. Now, the problem is blogs and sometimes podcasts aren't always able to keep up with the changes of time. As you've seen, laws change and it could have everyone in the finance world scattering around trying to get content to all of you in a timely manner. But even then, it might even be outdated literally the next day. That's why we said the timestamp of when we recorded this because things can change, especially right now. So if you have questions about your finances and you feel like you need someone focused on your particular question, please contact a financial professional. If you don't know anyone, 
reach out to us, our fee-only financial advising firm. We'd love to talk with you and see if we're a good fit. That's physicianwealthservices.com. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your day and I'll see you tomorrow. Cheers. Cheers.